we've talked about the whole issue in the New Testament of this betrothal language that shows up all over the place. And the, the church being the bride of Christ and Jesus being the groom and how much bride and bridegroom language there is in the New Testament. Uh, and I, I mean, it's all over the place when you really begin to dig in as you understand the first century Jew, Jewish betrothal and wedding. Uh, we looked at a number of passages. I'm not going to belabor them again, but just to continue, as this is part two of that message, continuing on, I'm going to pick up one thing uh, where we left off. Because of this betrothal language, we talked about in 1 Thessalonians, where we see the, the language there about the rapture of the church. And the rapture of the church being that time, not the second coming, it's a separate event, uh, seeing, and I shared with you that I believe that the preponderance of the biblical evidence points to the fact that there's a pre-tribulation rapture in store for the church. That time is the time for uh, the unredeemed and for Israel uh, to go through that time, uh, that seven-year period of time, the last seven years of Earth's history, the 70th week in Daniel, if you are a prophecy buff. And, uh, and so, but at the beginning of that, there's this thing that happens called the raptures, where the church is caught up together to meet with Jesus. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, in verses 16 through 18, we read, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. We saw that the bridegroom would go ahead of the groom, or the, the groomsman would go ahead of the groom and announce his coming for his bride. They would go and they would blow a shofar, if you remember, and and which was a trumpet in that sense, and they would go ahead of him and they say, he's coming now for, your bri- for you, his bride. And the dead in Christ will rise first here in Thessalonians. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words. I think that that's interesting because most of the language regarding the, the time when Jesus comes to take his church Jesus, when he taught, and he taught in the parables, remember the parable of the virgins and you know, having oil in the lamps and having your wicks trimmed and all that, that for those of you that are, are familiar with those passages, it was about being ready. But I got to thinking about something and I thought, you know, what if I was a bride and because of their custom, the bridegroom going to prepare a place for her at his father's house, uh, we looked at the language there, and if I was a bride and I knew that my guy was preparing a home for us to start our married life during this betrothal period, what would my attitude be about knowing he's going to show up at some point when I, and it was their custom not to tell? I'd be excited. I'd be excited. Of course we want to be found walking with the Lord. Just like, you know, I hear people say, oh, I hope I'm not in the middle of the, you know, it's like, oh, Jesus, hi. You know, and, and that's not the point. <laughs> That's not where, you know, but it's not, you know, and and I sort of heard people instill fear about that. And yeah, if you're not walking with the Lord, there's things to be fearful about because that is the end of the age of the Gentiles. That is the end of grace in that sense, because when the Holy Spirit withdraws his presence from this earth, literally all hell is going to break out. And so, I mean, it's a very serious thing, but also for us, his betrothed for the church, it's an exciting thing. 
You know, when he says, look up, for your redemption draws near. Man, and, and it is near. I'll tell you what, the groom, I believe he's right at the door, and he is going to come at any time. I, I mean, it's just a wonderful truth. Uh, it, it, the other thing I wanted to say about this is that not only, and because Paul says comfort one another with these things. I mean, you're going through a lot in this life. We go through a lot, guys. We never know when that phone call is going to come. We never know when that, that one thing is going to happen that's just going to topple our world. We never know when something's going to knock us off our feet. We just don't know. And things happen. And you know that, and I know that. How glorious is it that we serve a risen, living Lord that is intimately concerned with the daily affairs of our lives. Glorious. Be excited. Be comforted. It's not, you know, I, I was sharing with somebody, I was counseling with somebody the other day that's going through a lot, and I just said, you know, one thing that I, I, I love to share, and I don't mean, I don't love the circumstances that you're facing, but I, I really think it's important to share when people are in a crisis is you have to keep it right in front of you that it will not always be this way. It won't be this way. If you're going through it this morning, take courage, be comforted. It won't always be this way. It won't always hurt this much. You won't always be squeezed that much. You won't always be going through what you're going through perhaps this, this morning. And if you're not, I love what I heard a preacher say uh, years ago. He, he said, you know, if you're not going through a trial right now, you're either just coming out of one or you're headed into one. <laughs> because we go through, you know, those who, what does he say? He says, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We will go through those fiery ordeals that James talks about. He's counted all joy. And as a young Christian, I used to scratch my head and say, that guy must have been nuts when he wrote that. And I've learned since that he wasn't. Because there is this thing called the peace that passes understanding in the midst of the fire. And, and that God's will is to give us that peace. And you just got to stop arguing with him about it long enough to receive it. It's true. Stacy, at one point, Stacy got into some real serious uh, health-wise condition, and she was dying. And, and I, I, I will never forget sitting in my pickup truck out in the parking lot of the hospital, not knowing if she was going to live or die, literally. Her body was shutting down. And she was in surgery, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was sitting there, and I'm crying out to God. My, my daughter had gone to be with the Lord the year before, and I was still, you know, grieving over that. I mean, I was... I was getting pushed. I was getting shoved. I mean, I was getting stretched. And, and I just said, Lord, I can't do this again. You've got to do something. Just something. And in that, just that still small voice, you ladies, you heard about it yesterday, in that, that hushed whisper that he does so often, he just said, John, receive my peace. No, wait a minute. No, 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 no. I can't receive your peace. She's dying. no. Why do you think I call it the peace that passes understanding? And he shared with me in that moment, he gave me such clarity on that passage. If you, if I give you peace according to your understanding, all you are going to do is argue with me. Yeah, but she's dying. Yeah, but this. Yeah, but that. Yeah, but I can't, I can't handle this. Is, and, and, you know, and I've got this whole chatter going on in my, in, my, in my heart, in my mind. 
And, and I, he had my attention. And, and what he showed me is he said, just stop arguing with me and just receive my peace. Just receive it. And I'll never forget, again, guys, I was sitting there in my truck and I went, I never thought about that. Great spiritual man. <laughs> Pretty thick-headed sometimes. I said, I can do that, Lord. And I'm telling you, the circumstances didn't change. Of course, obviously, my wife lived. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank God for that. But I got out of my pickup truck and I had the sweetest, most sincere peace. And, and, and I mean, it was just a settledness in my soul. Guys, remember that. There's times where he taps us and he says, just receive my peace. Be excited, be comforted. None of that was in my notes, but hey, I think it's what the Lord wants to communicate to us this morning. Truly, the peace that passes understanding. The other thing about this, we've looked at all this marital language and this betrothal language and all of that, and it's great stuff. And I began to think, you know, I, I did singles ministry for a number of years, and, um, and it was a great ministry. I mean, because there's the stigma that kind of goes with single people, like you're kind of half a person, which is just total nonsense. Because you're a whole person. If you're single, be excited. Understand that you might be single in earthly terms, but you are still betrothed. So just, just a word for those of you that might be single out there, uh, just to be excited about these things. Jesus was excited. He went to this wedding. I mentioned last week that he wasn't a killjoy, that he actually enjoyed going to these things. He enjoyed the time he spent with those sinners and harlots, those tax collectors and all those people, those people that everyone else looked down their nose at. And he didn't join in with them, but he enjoyed fellowship with with all these people. And I was thinking about it. It reminded me of a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, and he, he was talking about just being, just being genuine and just being a joy-filled person. And we look at wine in the scriptures and it's symbolic of joy. And so it goes with the message this morning. Spurgeon said, an individual who has no genial, uh, geniality about him had better be an undertaker and bury the dead for he will never succeed in influencing the living. I love that. And you know, uh, J.I. Packer, one of my favorite theologians, talked about, it doesn't mean that you're always, you, you have to have this big glued on smile on your face, but it means that there's joy in your life. I mean, it, Packer talked about there are, people who you can read their face and you can see the joy. And then he called the others, he's British, uh, and he called them teapot Christians. You know, they're kind of, you know, and, and, and it's true. It doesn't mean that you always have to have like this big goofy smile on your face. I mean, I smile a lot just because I love to smile, but uh, it, even when I'm not smiling inside. But <laughs> seriously, there's just a place for joy. Anyway, uh, if we look at this and, and we, we take it apart, we, let's look at the first four verses again. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When they ran out of, the, out of wine, the mother of Jesus, Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? 
my hour is not yet come. And we spent the balance of our time last week at looking why his hour had not yet come because he had a lot of groundwork to lay. He had a lot of work to do to establish the basis for this bride and groom language that we see. And then, of course, to reveal himself as a Messiah because that's what my hour not, has not yet come is indicative in the scripture is that means that he would be revealed as Messiah and he would become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world that we've already read in John chapter 1. And so we look at this and we, we see that Mary comes to Jesus and she, she approaches him and she says, hey, they have no wine. Again, on the surface, the story it just flows. It's a beautiful story. It's the first miracle that Jesus did and all of that. But I have to wonder, because of another passage of Scripture, what else was going on here? And again, I'm going to go into interpretation, so I'll give you that warning ahead of time, but I believe it fits the context, because why would Jesus' mother come to him? He had just started his ministry less than a week before, and here he is, he's in Cana, he's traveled up from the, the backside of the Jordan River where he was baptized by John the Baptist, and, and he's at this wedding, and his mother comes to him. She could have gone to anybody, she could have gone to the groom, she could have gone to the groom's parents, which would have been the appropriate thing to do. And I mentioned last week, you got to realize that running out of a wine at a wedding in the first century, I mean, they couldn't just go down to Safeway or Fred Meyer and get some more wine. I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't big enough. Cana wasn't big enough for Fred Meyer. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> it, it, I mean, these little towns where they made their own wine. It, this was a huge problem. And socially, it was a huge social disgrace for the family. Because, again, this whole feast, these people, this might be the only party they have. And they party for a whole week. This might be the only thing, that, the only social event they have for the year in these little towns where they're just struggling to make it. Um, and Stacy and I, when we were in the, uh, in the, the Far East up in Burma and Thailand, we realized that life for these people, for the people that we were ministering to and with, it wasn't about decisions, about choices. It was about surviving. That's it. I mean, it was about survival. And these people were in a culture and in an economy that it was about surviving. And so when they had these feasts and they had these deals, the family poured everything they had into them and to run out of wine was a big deal. It was a really big deal. And so Mary comes to Jesus, and I, I, I'm going to look here in John chapter 8, and I'm going to read a few verses out of that. Uh, and this is Jesus interacting with the Jews. Remember we talked about when you see the word Jews in the Gospel of John, that means the bad guys, okay? Um, loosely stated, but I mean, seriously, it means the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the ones who would eventually put him on the cross. They were the ones who stood against him every step of the way. Why? Well, for one thing, they didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear because they'd never come to faith. And for another thing, they had power as a puppet nation under Rome. These people had the, the Sanhedrin, the ruling spiritual authority or religious, I would say more than spiritual authority in, in Israel. They had power. They had authority uh, over civil and religious matters in that in that day. And so when Jesus came onto the scene and he started drawing all these big crowds, they were being drawn away from them. They became very jealous. They became very envious and he threatened their power base. And we'll see that more when we look next week at him going up onto the temple mount and cleansing the temple and taking out a, cord, or a whip of, of cords and, and 
turning over the money changers tables and all of that. There's some really interesting stuff that goes on there when you have understanding of what these guys had reduced the things of God to. So Jesus is talking now. He's having dialogue in John chapter 8 with the Jews. And in verse 37, he says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Talking to the religious leaders. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. So he's talking about two fathers here. One is Father God, and one was their father, the devil, Satan himself. That he was essentially in their face. You know, the interesting, the only time you see Jesus poking somebody in the chest, and I, I, mean, I picture that he did that. It doesn't say he poked him in the chest. But I mean, I've been poked in the chest before, and it, it hurts. But the only time you see him really getting rough with people were the people that thought that they were there. They were the people that were so hung on their thing. They were the people that were hung in spiritual pride and self-righteousness. Guard your hearts, guys. It can creep into our lives. And I don't want to have Jesus rough with me. I mean, he, he loves us and he's gracious with us and all of that. And um, pride is a killer. And, and we see that with these, these men here. Uh, he says, you're, I do... I speak what I've seen with my father and you do what you've seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Your deeds are of your father. And they said to him, and this is key, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. How long had Mary lived with the reproach in human eyes, in human terms? How long had she lived with the reproach of having gotten pregnant with Jesus before she was married to Joseph? Do you think that after three decades plus that that she would maybe have a little bit of interest in saying, Jesus, you can reveal yourself to these people and I'll finally be free of this because the, the Pharisees here are saying, you know what, you're talking about your father, God, and we're talking about our father, Abraham. Well, yeah, well, we have our father, that's Abraham, and we weren't born of fornication implied like you. Like you. And I, I mean, it just in human terms, Mary living with this thing over her head, knowing that she had seen the angel, knowing that her soul was magnified. I love her, the whole thing at the birth of Christ. And we're going to look at that more. But knowing these things and treasuring them in her heart for decades now, and knowing that every time she walked through uh, maybe the public market or she was out doing something, that there would be those hushed whispers. And maybe seeing, looking at people and they look away. You, you've been there. You've seen what happens. You know, when people are talking about you and, and all of a sudden you realize and, and they... Oh, maybe that person overheard or, you know, and you can only imagine the things that she dealt with. So here they run out of wine at this wedding and she's going, Jesus, if you fix this, you're going to fix the little problem that I've had too. Makes sense. I don't know. That may not have been what was in her mind, but uh, knowing people, she had suffered a lot over the years. 
In verse 5, his mother says to the servant, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. That's the best advice I think anybody could ever give. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Trust and obey. It comes down, it's that simple. I mentioned before that, you know, I used to look at obedience as a Christian, like, you know, obedience training my dog where he does a little trick and I pop a snack in his mouth. You know, and that's that's a warped idea of what obedience is. And when you fully realize that your life is immersed in the grace of God, that your life is immersed in the righteousness of Jesus, that he poured his righteousness into you in such measure that you are absolutely clean, spotless, blameless, free from sin. And then he sanctifies you, declares you not only sinless, but he declares you holy. And you realize that your life is, is seen by the Father. I mean, you blow it in some way and, and Jesus is not... Father, wait, that's on me. He's mine. She's mine. What an awesome thing. Our response to the love that he pours out in our life, it's never a means towards it. The only act of obedience that is a means towards an end is the obedience of faith, which you see the book of Romans, and Lord willing, we'll get there one day. Uh, it begins in, yeah, we've got to get through John chapter 2. Uh, <laughs> it's only been three months. But in the book of Romans, it begins and ends with a statement, the obedience of faith or obedience to the faith. That is the one the, to believe is the only act. And, and again, there's a lot. You could go back and forth and we could have a great discussion after church about it. Not my point this morning. But truly, when I come and I give my life to Christ, that's usually the place where... I even realize he initiated that, but where my response counts, all right? Now, it's not that my response doesn't count from there forward. My microphone's falling off. Um, It's not that my, my response doesn't count, but my response then, my obedience to Christ, my obedience to the Lord is not something that is mandated by the fact that he's gonna whap me if I'm not. Very often, I just don't get the blessing. You see that here with these guys. We'll get into that in a second. But my obedience is a response. It's simply a response to his love. It's never a means towards his love. His love is poured out. That's what grace is. I love you because I choose to love you, not because you're just all that and more. And you might be, you might not be, but that's not what it's about. It's about his choosing to love us. And, And as we deal with one another, especially in the body, It's about choosing to love that other person. It's easy to love the lovable, the Bible tells us. What about those people that are not so lovable? What about that person that really rankles you at times? Challenging stuff. But my obedience, my obedience to the Lord is a response to his work in my life. It's not a means towards it because it's not by my works. But it's going to be there. Show me your faith, I'll show you my works. That's what James said. So in verse six, it says, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Now, do the math, guys. At 20 gallons, it'd be 120 gallons. At 30 gallons, it'd be 180 gallons. I mean, pretty simple. 
And Jesus said to them, verse 7, fill the water, water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. These guys obeyed Jesus as much as is humanly possible. You've got to remember, they didn't know what was about to happen. They had no clue. All they knew was Mary tells Jesus, we're out of wine, and Jesus, she says, you guys do whatever he says. And he says, fill the water pots up. You know, the ones we use to wash with. Those ones. Now, with, in the first century, the, the, the ceremonial washing that the Jews did, there, were, there was two parts to it. One was they would use them to wash the feet of the guests that were coming into the home. And they would, I mean, if it was dry, it would be dusty and dirty. I don't know how your feet look when you've been walking around in sandals all day, but mine are a mess. Uh, or if it was raining, they always wore sandals. They just wore these simple sandals. If it was raining, they'd be all muddy. And their homes were considered to be clean, and so they would wash. It was a practical thing, but it was also a ceremonial thing because your feet were the only part of you that touched this dirty earth kind of a thing. The other thing is that they would do a ceremonial washing of their hands. And they had this whole deal where they would let the, the, they would have the water, they would run it, it would run down towards their elbows, and then they'd tip their hands the other way, to run off their fingertips, and then they would use their, their, their fists to clean the palms. I mean, it was this whole ornate deal. And even in Israel today, I would go to a men's room in Jerusalem or some other part of Israel, and at the sink there would be this, it was kind of weird because they had like this little chain that was strapped around, you know, to where nobody could steal it, <laughs> probably because tourists would do it. But a little chain, it would be hooked to this cup that had two handles. And it was for ceremonial washing so that they could use one to wash and then use that to wash the other. And Because they, they still, they would do this whole ceremonial thing. What's interesting about that, guys, is that Jesus is here at this wedding. The water pots are empty and they're used for ceremonial washing. And there's some really interesting parallels there because there was no amount of washing that could be done that could restore Israel's joy. The wine was gone. The joy was gone. It had been 400 years, more than 400 years since God had even spoken. And then when he had spoken, he had had some things that were pretty tough to hear. Uh, yes, there, there was comfort, but there was also some judgment involved and all of that. And so here Jesus shows up on the scene. The first miracle that he does is to change water into wine. I mean, I would think that, you know, it would be good if he, like, did some of the other stuff, like he spit in the dirt and made mud and gave a guy back his sight. But what he's doing here is he's fixing a social problem. And it's like, well, why would he do that as his first miracle? I mean, you look at that, and I, I always, when I'm studying, I look, is this the first time that, is it the principle of first mention? And the principle of first mention is there's usually significance, a deeper meaning uh, to the first time you see something that shows up in the scripture. And here, Israel has, I mean, they have run out of their provision. They have run out of joy. These people are living as captives, I mentioned, under Rome. Their lives are hard. The religious leaders had reduced the things of God to lists of endless lists of obedience that really just didn't get anybody anywhere. And here, Jesus is saying, you know what? You've lost your joy. Your cleansing has to go deeper than a ceremony. 
you need to be wed to me in that sense. Interesting things going on here. They obeyed him as much as they human, as was hum, humanly possible. They filled those water pots to the brim. And I think it's interesting that in my obedience, there seems to be a correlation between the, the level of the degree of my obedience and the level and the degree of God's blessing. I understand something here. I am not tipping on the side of saying God's blessings are conditional because they're unconditional. He, the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. However, I can block God's blessing. I can block it. I mean, but just by showing up here, I was telling someone this week, I like going to church here. I really do. I mean, I go to church here too. I'm the pastor. I better like going to church here, but no, I really do. I enjoy it. I enjoy the family and I enjoy, you know, every aspect of it. I mean, it's a great place. And I mean, if I want to come and hear what the Lord has for me, I have to show up, right? I mean, it's simple. I could block that blessing. And you guys are here, so I'm preaching to the choir. But I could block that blessing by saying, you know what? I think I'm going to sleep in today. See, I've just inserted my will ahead of what he wants because he doesn't want me to forsake the assembling together with the saints and all that. And there are th- times when things come up. I'm, I'm not making some trippy thing about it. But we can block God's hand of blessing in our lives. And I, I, you'll hear me say again and again, the only thing he ever asks of us is that we show up. That's it. It's that simple. He wants to do the work. And, when I, and what it means is if I'm not getting along with my wife, I need to show up and say, Lord, work in my heart. If I'm going through a trial with something or some person, he wants me to show up. In other words, seek him. Seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and the other stuff will come. It's really true. This is really simple stuff. It's not it's not this big, complicated theological deal. I love theology. I love digging, and I love just, you know, I, I, I've told you how blessed I get just studying. I love to do that. But at the end of the day, it's just you, it's just me and Jesus and his Holy Spirit working within, prompt, prompting us to a life of obedience as a response to his grace, prompting us to a life of joy because our joy doesn't come from empty stone water pots. Our joy comes from the Lord himself. Our joy is our strength. Interesting. Happiness communicated to my soul through my circumstances. Joy communicated to my soul from the Holy Spirit himself. Which one's greater? Which one's going to give me this deep sense of satisfaction? I mean, I was asked to speak at my mother's memorial service. And I wasn't a happy guy. I really loved my mom. But I had this deep abiding joy because I knew where she was and I was so excited that she was in heaven and finally free from all the junk she dealt with. She had a hard life. Joyful. Circumstances were tough, man. I was grieving. My mom died. But I had this joy. My soul was buoyed. It was, it was lifted up. And he wants to give us this joy. And it's, yes, wine is symbolic of joy. I mentioned last week, except for the passages that say, eh, you better be careful with that. But truly, it's symbolic of joy. And that's part of why Jesus did this as his first miracle. 
because he wants us to have joyful lives. Lives that are lived above our circumstances and we forget and we start to react in our circumstances. And he says, as though he comes alongside, he says, wait a minute, John, wait. Ratchet it up a few notches. Consider what I want to do in this situation. I want to free you from the shackles of your circumstances. They might not change. I've told people over and over and over and over again over the years, and I will still say it, and people come to me for counsel. I cannot, I do not have the ability to fix your circumstances. I can pray that they change, and I will, and God may change them, and he may not. But I can show you how to live really well from God's word to live really well within those circumstances. That's a guarantee he gives us. He doesn't say he's going to keep us from the trials. He says he'll walk through them with us. Good stuff. Interesting principle here. We see Jesus taking water and making it wine. He is taking the inferior and changing it to the superior. The world works the opposite. The world says, hey, I've been in the advertising business for over 40 years and, and, and learned what a limited time offer is. You've heard that? Limited time offer. Call now. That's what the world does. The world offers limited time offers. Satan is great at offering limited time offers. I don't mean great in the sense of good, but I mean, he is really, really deceptive. And he will package a thing. How do you think people get hooked on drugs? I, I did the most unorthodox thing with my kids when I was, they were growing up. I'd take them for a ride in the car and I'd say, you want to know something? Drugs are fun. And you should have seen my daughter's big brown eyes bulge out of her head when I said, are you telling me done? No. That's the hook. That's the hook. Nobody's telling the truth around here. You start out, they say, hey, here's the superior. Pretty soon, one day you wake up and instead of you having it, it's got you. Same thing with alcoholism. Same thing with anything that the world floats out there as attractive. Sex. I'm telling you, the deception's there. The world flows the opposite of what Jesus does here. He takes the inferior water and turns it into wine. Not just any wine, but really, really good wine. I mean, to where the people are kind of blown away, good wine. And what the world does is says, here's the really, really good stuff. And nobody, nobody ever offered me drugs. I'm a child of the 70s. Nobody ever offered me drugs and said, hey, man, these things will enslave you and ruin your life. No, they said, hey, man, want a party? And it's being stupid at the time. Yeah, sure. But, you know, the point is, is that's, that's how the world goes. And Jesus, again, he demonstrates this principle of taking the inferior and, and elevated it, elevating it. That's what he does with us. We come to the Lord, man, our lives are a mess. I don't know about yours, but I, and I wasn't going through any big, huge, horrific deal, but I just had this leanness in my soul, and I just had this lack, and I knew I'd been searching for God for 10 years and all this crazy stuff. And... And there was just a settledness. And he took my inferior life and did something very superior in it. Elevated it to a place that I never knew that there was this kind of life available. Still does. Even when I blow it, and I'm not going to tell you how I blow it, 
No, seriously. But I mean, even when we blow it, even when we do things that are goofy, I love that. He's just right there to take us and to set us back on the right course and to just love us through those things. When you look at standards, the world has a standard and God has a standard. God's standard is fixed. Study his word and you'll see that the precepts, the principles, the things that he lays out there are fixed. Reap what you sow. The world has a standard too. Fixed, not so much. The world always adjusts its standard. You, you guys, a lot of you guys are, are my age or, or, or maybe a little older. You remember back when television, I mean, I remember being scandalized when Archie Bunker came on. I'm serious. I mean, it was like, that guy talks about stuff nobody ever talked about. And then there was that, that television program, was pretty raunchy, Three's Company. And it was started opening the door to all the sexual innuendos and all that stuff. The reason for that is the world standard shifts. The problem with that is it always shifts lower. Every time. Superior, inferior. It goes from a fixed standard. We, we, we grew up under the Judeo-Christian ethic where you, actually your word was your buying me. You told something you really meant it. You'd show up if you said you're, I mean, all of that. And now it's kind of this subjective, maybe, if I feel like it. Things have changed. Talking to a pastor friend this week in, in Crescent City. Uh, just about how the landscape has shifted in the body of Christ. Uh, and folks, we're not immune to it. We need to guard our hearts against it. To seek pleasure, even within the body. Uh, a lot of churches have, have sort of done this shift to where it's become an entertainment thing. And, and, and I'm entertained and my senses are titillated maybe by all the lights and the glitz and all of that. I'm not saying those are necessarily bad things. But when people say, well, gee, I, I, I couldn't receive from that person or, or I just wasn't growing at that church that was teaching the word. I would much rather have a, a church here of 50, 60, 100 people, whatever, than to have some mega church of carnal Christians. And that's an oxymoron. I understand. But you know what I'm saying? Because the landscape spiritually has shifted. We live in the post-Christian era. And things like this are becoming more and more and more rare. Things like what happened in Texas and what's happened in other places where some kook comes in and shoots up the church have become more commonplace. And I, I'm not going to live under the fear of that. I'm, of course, we want to be responsible and all of that. But at the same time, it's a different world because the world's standard shifts and it always shifts lower. Not in God's economy. I praise the Lord. His standard is fixed. And when he does something in my life, it's to elevate me. It's to take me out of that miry clay, to, to lift me up, to set my feet on a rock. I love Psalm 61 and, and Psalm 40 for that reason. So the first thing, if we look at this, at this miracle that Jesus does, 
well, let's go back to verse 8. And, and Jesus says to them, let's draw, he said, draw out some, some now and take it to the master of the feast. And they had sort of a head waiter type of a person. Uh, it wasn't, uh, it was usually somebody that was appointed to take care of the details so the family could enjoy and entertain their guests. So they would have a responsible person that was like designated to be the go-to guy during this feast so that no one else would be, would have to bother with it. And so he said, take it to the master of the feast. And when he tasted the water that was made wine, he didn't know where he'd come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Now picture this. These guys take the water that was made wine, and they take it to the, the master of the feast, and it says he didn't know where it came from, but they did. Can you imagine the looks on their faces as their eyes met? Like, you know what I mean? I mean, this would have been a great scene. I, again, I hope they have reruns in heaven because I want to see this, but... But I'm serious. I mean, it's like, this would have been, yeah, <laughs> syndication. <laughs> like some tickets to the wedding at Cana, please. But <laughs> uh, two, no, I'm a senior. Yeah. Um, anyway, I mean, that would be great. But just picture the looks on these guys' faces. They saw this full-blown miracle. and They're like, this is amazing. We got 180 gallons of wine. You know how long it's going to take to drink that? I mean, and Jesus says, yeah, so take it to that guy over there. And they're like, sure, okay. And they go marching over there and they give it to this guy. And they see the look on his face. Like he's just like maybe drinks it. And wow, you know, this is some, wow. And he calls the, the bridegroom and he says to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. You didn't bring out the thunderbird at the end. No, serious. they didn't have that. But... <laughs> But you didn't bring out the lousy stuff that nobody would notice after they'd had a couple glasses, or I don't know how that worked. Because a lot of times what they did in this society was they took the wine and they would water it down because the alcohol would kill germs and all of that. But it did have alcohol qualities. I mean, there wouldn't be so much written in the Bible about it if it didn't. I mean, that's kind of silly. I've heard people try to just totally excuse it. It's like, all right, get over it. We're adults. We know that wine can be really, really destructive. And there's some great instruction in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. Go check it out yourself because he's, there's, I, I, I will not sit here and make a doctorate about not drinking wine. It, it, you can't. Have millions, literally millions of lives been wrecked, totally wrecked, in the toilet, wrecked over the millennia from alcohol? Oh, you bet. Our, our countless lives affected and drawn in, sucked in to that whole thing with alcoholism now, you bet. Very, very, very destructive. And there's just some great instruction. I wish we had time this morning to cover it. Uh, we will at another time. I'm not, I'm not shrinking away from it. I want you to know. But there's some great instruction about if that is a liberty that you have, you better be responsible with it you better be responsible. Because he says, man, I just, I'll never eat or drink again if I'm going to stumble a brother. When my mother, when I got saved, one of the first things, the first acts of obedience, again, that voluntary obedience, was my mother was an alcoholic. And after I got saved, I was talking to her one day. I said, Mom, she said, oh, honey, could you go to the store? No. No, Mom, I won't. Why not? Is it against your religion? 
said, oh gosh, I hate that saying. But, and I said, no, it's not. But it should be against yours. Because you have a problem with alcohol, mom, and I love you, and I'm not going to be a part of it. You do what you're going to do. I love you anyway. But you know, that's where it's at. I remember I was with a relative one time. We were going to a play an uh, hour away. And this guy, um, he used that same term as against my religion, which I thought was funny. But, uh, and I understand what people mean when they say that, so don't get hung up on that. Well, we stopped at a store. We stopped at a liquor store in California. All the corner markets have booze in them and wine and all that. Because he wanted to get some breath mints. And um, he comes back out and he's laughing when he gets in the car. And I said, what's, what's, so, what's so funny, Jerry? He goes, oh, see that guy over there? And there was a guy panhandling out in front of the store. He goes, I said, yeah. He said, he asked me if I had 40 cents. And uh, he said, I'm just going to be really honest with you, man. I want 40 cents because I want to buy a bottle of wine. And he said, I told him, no, I'm sorry. I don't have 40 cents. That's against my religion. And um, I started laughing. And he said, what? He said, well, it, well he said, the, the guy responded. And he said, well, Jesus turned water into wine. And I started laughing. And he said, what? I said, well, what I would have said is, yeah, but he didn't have to bum 40 cents to do it. <laughs> And, you know, it's just, (laughs) but it's true, guys. I mean, we get hung up on things like that, but I just want to convey to you that, yes, is alcohol very dangerous? Yes. Sore cars. I told my wife we were watching the news not long ago and somebody had been knifed. And I wasn't making a joke out of that, making light of somebody's calamity. But I said, you know, Maybe we should think about legislation to outlaw butcher knives. Um, not trying to weigh in on the political spectrum here, but you know, when people talk about gun control and all that, it, it's, it doesn't make sense that you take the instrument that someone used to commit evil and get rid of that. I mean, if that was the case, then we'd outlaw butcher knives, we'd outlaw cars, we'd outlaw you know, all of this stuff. Where is human responsibility in the midst of all of that? And that's the point when it comes to alcohol. And that's what God's word presents, what it puts out. It puts out a very clear approach. Um, not condemning, um, not endorsing, simply saying, you know, God's word has the answers, has very good instruction on that. So that's all I got. Forrest Gump, that's all I got to say about that. Um, <laughs> The first thing we see here is that Jesus, Jesus is making an endorsement of marriage in this miracle, this, this wedding at Cana. Uh, in Ephesians 5, I was going to take some time to go there, but uh, there's just a wonderful, wonderful passage. I'll teach it in depth sometime when we're talking about marriage because it's, there's some uh, unlocking that passage really clarifies a lot of issues. Um, but a wonderful pattern there that he shows with our marriages being a reflection of the relationship that Jesus has with the church. Wonderful stuff there. Um, verse 11, this is the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now there's that word believe. Remember I said it's like 99 times in the Gospel of John, there it is again. It's, it's a verb, which means action. Their lives changed. See, these guys, they had just been with him for a few days. And they had come, they were attracted to him because there were some pretty interesting things going on down there at the Jordan River. 
And they had, some of them had spent some time with him, spent the night with him. Remember when uh, Andrew and John went in and all of that, and then Philip and Nathaniel came along. And so here he is with these guys, and he does this full-blown miracle right in, their, in, in plain sight. And they went, there's something really special about this guy. About miracles, quickly before we close. Signs and wonders. There is so much abuse out there in the spiritual landscape on this subject. And I just want to clear a couple things up just so that we have a balanced view. Number one, does God still do the miraculous? You're sitting here. Salvation is a miracle. You've got to remember, from his standpoint, he's just doing what he does. But because he owns physics, like he created physics, right? That when he does something that contradicts the laws of physics, we go, that's a miracle. He changed water into wine. Do you know how much time it would take to do that in the physical realm? And millions of dollars and thousands of man hours to maybe get a couple ounces or whatever? He just goes, Done. So for him, he's just doing what he does, but he does it for a purpose. They are always attesting miracles. In, in Acts chapter 2, verses 20 through, two, through 24, Peter here, who again had experienced this baptism of the Holy Spirit we talked about a few weeks back, a few weeks before had been cowering at the enemy's fire, cursing at some young lady that had tried to call him out for being a Galilean, vehemently denying that he knew this Jesus guy. Here he is preaching the gospel. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested, to, attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. There's the gospel right there. And whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He talks about this. He talks about wonders and signs. Miracles, wonders, and signs, he, he, the whole thing. And there, it's actually several Greek words. There's four primary Greek words that are translated as a miracle. Three of them are used in this passage in Acts. The, the word uh, miracles or powers is, is the word dunamis. We've talked about that, the dynamic. There's a dynamic, a supernatural dynamic to what's going on. The wonders is the word teras. And what it means is things that, it, it's like, I love the saying, things that make you say, huh. If something happens, you go, huh, wow, that's amazing. Those are wonder, the things that make you wonder. It's like, I, wow. I mean, that's all I can really, it's the best way this word translated, translates. And then there's the word uh, Simeon, uh, which is also uh, the word that's being used by Jesus here in the Gospel of John. And what it means is a sign. I mentioned last week that a sign doesn't just sit there for its own sake. Many people today are trying to do signs and they're an end unto themselves. That is not God's will. Anything that happens in that department when it doesn't point to Jesus, 
I will dismiss out of hand. And it's a good, it's a good practice. Because there's so much abuse that these things have become an end unto themselves. We'll see that uh, when we look at the triumphal entry, perhaps at Easter, there were four crowds that were following Jesus that day. And one of them was the signs and miracles, signs and wonders crowd. And I'm not making it up. It's right there in the Gospel of John. But the point is, is that in the, the last work is, is also the works that he did. It's, it's the Greek word ergon. It's where we get ergonomics. But the works that he did, again, they were supernatural in nature. Interesting, in Acts chapter 8, we see Simon the magician. Those of you that know the scripture, he sees the, the apostles display this power and he says, hey, I want to buy some of that. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he did. He gets all excited. Interesting, he didn't use any of these Greek words. He didn't use the Greek words for miracle. He used another word, it was, it's exhausia. And what it meant was the authority to rule or a symbol of authority. Interesting. He saw the miracles and he thought, that'll make me a big shot. That'll, make, that'll elevate me. And that's why Peter and the guys said, your money perish with you. Get out of here, essentially. Uh, but uh, just when we talk about miracles, when we talk about these signs, there are seven in the Gospel of John that, that John really camps on. And they're because he wants us to understand it. He wants to convey the fact that Jesus is Messiah. And Jesus is Savior. Jesus is Lord. And that's the end of those miracles. Does he still do miracles? Yes. Does he still raise the dead? I've heard. I've never seen it. But I've heard about some great, I mean, from some reliable people in Africa and things like that where there are these kind of things that are, that are happening. I can't discount that. I, like I said, I'm not seeing with my own eyes. But yes, he still does miracles. And he does demonstrate his power. He still reaches into the physical realm and does things that are supernatural, beyond the natural. That's what qualifies it as a miracle. But be careful not to get caught up. You know, Simon the Magician, he was sort of like the, the first century equivalent of a televangelist. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have a real high opinion of a lot of those guys. You know, there's some good teaching on television, but for the most part, you have people that are out there and they're, they're essentially begging for bucks, and there's, which I don't agree with. I was sharing with um, someone the other day. Uh, I love what, what Pastor Chuck, my pastor uh, for many years, would say, uh, Chuck Smith. And, and he'd say, you know, I'm called to be a minister. And, and my calling is to serve you because a minister is a servant. And so with me being a servant and called to minister to you, when I'm asking you for money, for money, I'm asking you to serve, I'm asking you to minister to me. Kind of gets it backwards. Does that mean that giving is not a solid spiritual principle? Absolutely not. Giving is a very solid principle. And we'll teach on it when we get to it. Yeah, tithe is an Old Testament word, and we use it sometimes culturally, and you know, I'm not gonna get hung up about it, but more accurately, it's giving because it's not 10%, it's 100% of my life and everything I've got. And I give a portion back to him. The point is, is that Simon the Magician had this whole thing going. And he's like the first guy that you see that wants to abuse this miraculous power that Jesus bestowed upon his own people. And the apostolic stuff that they were doing was amazing. Where Jesus goes again from cowering at the enemy's fire to he healing some guy on the steps of the temple. It, you know, in the name of Jesus, take up your pallet and walk. That's pretty amazing. 
Did that die with the end of the apostles? I'm not a dispensationalist in that. I do not see any real evidence in the scripture that his supernatural dealing with man died at the end of the apostolic age. That's called the dispensational view, and I'm not, and I don't believe that that's the case. I think the scripture clearly indicates that he does do the miraculous, but you gotta see it in balance. You gotta see it in light of God's word. In John chapter six, we'll get there. Jesus was upset. He'd fed 5,000 people. And I know I'm running late and I'll, I'll finish up here in a second. Just a closing thought. Jesus had fed 5,000 people on the backside, I believe on the backside of Mount Arbel. We'll look at pictures of that some other time, but uh, it's one of the few places around the Sea of Galilee where there's a gent gentle sloping area that you could fit that many people in. It's mostly it's mountains and hills and rocks. And he says this, he says, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. He says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. That's the purpose of the signs, to demonstrate that the Father had put his seal upon the Son. So as we look at this wedding in Cana, miraculous stuff, great stuff, uh, great story, and also some great application as far as looking at what, where Israel was at that point in her life as, as a nation and as, as a group of individuals as well. And we see some clear things from God's word as far as looking at, at uh, that particular miracle and then also looking at taking some instruction on God's view towards alcohol, God's view towards marriage, God's view towards miracles and towards the miraculous, the supernatural. And all of that said, let's pray. <laughs> Father, thank you for this time, for this uh, brief look again at your word, at this miracle, that you, this sign that you performed, uh, that Jesus performed at this wedding in Cana, uh, Lord. And how much instruction we could just... Uh, derive from that. I pray, Father, for each one here that you uh, would bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at this morning, the things you want to uh, perhaps speak to us. We thank you, Lord, for your peace. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love that's poured out on our lives daily. We rely upon you, Father. We're utterly reliant upon you for each breath. We thank you, Lord, for this day and for this time. We pray you'd go before us the rest of this day in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen.